0: Welcome to Funny Business, a podcast for free thinkers.
1: Locke wants to leave my name out, but I'm Rob Hicks. Since you've done it, I suppose I have to do it. I'm Lockie Bradford. And today we talk to Daniel Wern, Head of Design at UpBank. We talk how Dan got his start in design and how he ended up in one of Australia's hottest tech teams, what iterative delivery is so important, and he gives some advice for those aspiring designers out there. Enjoy.
0: When did you know you wanted to be a designer? Did you grow up and think it. When I grow up, I'm, I'm a designer.
2: I, I had Photoshop real early, like year nine. So I would have been about 15. I think we came back from Bali one time and I got it for like 2000 rupiah. <laughs> like, I don't think I had a legit version of Photoshop for most of my career until I started working for people. But um, <laughs> yeah, there's a huge, I don't know, Photoshop's a pretty familiar concept now because of memes and all that kind of stuff. But back in the day, it was, the goal of it was to touch up photos and um, it just had this huge learning curve back then at, Apple wasn't really in its heyday. So like this whole movement of you know ease of use and intuitive design, none of these were things yet. It was all about power and the interfaces which is really overwhelming. And ultimately it just took a long time to. I was pretty motivated. I just found it really fun and spent a couple of years just getting quite good at it. And then, um, so for the most part, when I was young, I was just that person in the group that could make funny birthday cards and you know Photoshop people's faces on the, Funny images, and then. Um, but I always thought I was going to be an engineer, so um, I thought I'd be a programmer. So that's what I that's what I studied. But I often lament that it took me a long time to realize that I'm not a very good engineer. So fortunately, I just have the design thing in the back pocket. Um, it's ended up kind of working out a little bit for me because I kind I understand sort of a lot of engineering concepts and pain points, and uh, I'm able to collaborate pretty well with engineers. But um, during uni and sort of pushing right through to the end of the degree, I was a little bit worried about what I was going to do because I, I knew that I didn't have a natural talent in it. It was pretty, um, what's the word, like humbling, being in a, in a course with a whole bunch of other guns and realising that, oh shit, maybe I've chosen the wrong degree.
0: Do you think it helps being able to commute, like having that background, like you said, being able to collaborate and understand what the engineers are doing in your team? Because um, we, we spoke with Chris Wilson from IBM and he talked how important it was for designers to be the facilitation of the process and understand and communicate with their team members. Do you really think that helps you understanding what they do in order to get outcomes?
2: Yeah, that's a cool quote, because that wasn't always the way. Like, when I started, designers were, or at least in my experience, um, designers would just come in at the end of the process and make things look pretty. And it wasn't really offensive to be told, oh, can you just do a pass on this? It was like, yeah, that's my thing. And then there's a bit of a shift, I suppose, in the valley, there must have been like Google or, um, some company like that started to understand the value, oh sorry, of course it would have been sort of cheerleaded by Apple initially, but now it's really prominent in the whole industry to have designers not own the whole thing, but be involved earlier in the process for a few different reasons. I think just the way we think, the way we can diverge with ideas and then converge down to solutions, and I think it would be expensive for other disciplines to do that. If an engineer had to go and fully explore sort of broad ideas, they'd have to potentially build it out or experience all the shortfalls as they're doing it. Whereas designers, we can visualize stuff, we can explore stuff in a more efficient way. So that's been a thing over the last five or six years. But
0: Do you want to touch on convergent and divergent thinking? We had, we talked about it in a different podcast, but we didn't sort of go into depth. And I reckon it'd be a really good thing for our listeners to understand what the difference, difference is in that design process.
2: I don't really have an academic. Like I could do it at a really high level. High level's
0: good, mate, We're, yeah. that's, that's what we want.
2: I think well the the thing I'm kind of touching on is and we um, it's probably a bit of snobbery but there's a little bit of cringing in the in um, in the discipline around really formal processes like double diamond and all these things you you see in in slide decks and stuff not not so much because they're not effective but just um, I think they can be less ad hoc and lean or human in a way because they're just they can be so formal but um, at a high level divergent just means when you come up with a problem like Um, I wanted to design a podcast microphone (laughs) because I'm looking at it right now. You would then go and um, diverge and explore sort of really far and wide. Okay, well, what else is there in the industry? What what are the competitors? What are the various, what's the history of podcast microphones? How do they iterate? Why are we at where we are? now? sort of this whole, like if I was describing it on a whiteboard, you're sort of spreading out rather than sort of picking a direction early and going quite narrow and pointing. I suppose that's, that's the visual way of explaining it and then at some point you sort of stop that process and say okay well we've spent a week or two or we've we've agreed on a scope to sort of do that part of the process now let's um ideate and sort of think about you know sort of converge and and narrow down on a certain direction and throughout this process you kind of perhaps testing you're probably going with user tests or you you're dog feeding it yourselves or there's all these sort of lingo words but the idea is that because the process is more thorough and exploratory, you have a lot more confidence in what you're about to ship rather than just picking sort of a narrow thing and just going off for six months and then realising you got it wrong.
0: What about your journey? So you've been involved with some early stage startups here in, 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 in Oz, so Culture Amp and, and now Up. Yep. What, what, what have you learned along the way and, and how have those experiences there shaped your career?
2: Well, even before Culture Amp, I was with a small startup called Adioso, and that's, looking back, that was probably the most influential kind of period of my career. It was, at the start of that, I was a UI designer, and then coming out of the end of that, I sort of had a more familiar understanding of business value and product design and sort of not just honing it on the craft, but thinking more about, like I said before, problem solving. Um, but I kinda, it was, a really small, it was a really small startup, it was like five of us. I was collaborating directly with the founders and it kind of withered and died on the vine. But they were big, Uh, they were a Y Combinator startup, which is this, um, Paul Graham's the founder of Hacker News, and he's an investor in a lot of those famous startups in the valley, and they exposed me to a lot of the process that feels quite intuitive to me now around lean and um, just testing concepts, and can't really hack a lot of them off my brain, but I was just doing that week in, week out for a couple of years, and it just became second nature to just get things out quick and find out if they hook or not, rather than going really deep. Uh, I think prior to that, I would have preferred to uh, doing a lot of website work or branding work, or you just, it's, it was less um, speculative or risky, but I'd, I'd always wanted deep dive on things for a long time, um, like project-based, mm-hmm. and then um, just became real familiar with, I think that, that word lane, that everyone sort of flings around, but it just became sort of second nature to me over that period of time. Uh, And then by the time I joined Culture, I was not hitting the ground running, but I felt a lot more confident in my skill set. And they were a completely different context. They were just rose a Series A. So they were just exploding in headcount and scope. and Must have been a fun place to be around. Yeah. And it's like, I I don't know if this is official yet, but I think Culture X, Australia's newest unicorn, like they're with Atlassian and Canberra. And I think, um, yeah, they're kind of going to be the the darling of the tech scene for, for years to come. And I still keep in touch with a few of the founders and a lot of the team. And yeah, it was a really cool place to work. It was really progressive and the mission around making the world a better place to work, obviously at the time through like engagement surveying, which as a product designer is not the sexiest problem to be sort of on. But then like, once I got into it, I could see the impact it was having and um, and why everyone was so aligned and you know, engagement was really high. And it was a really cool place to work, but then, um, I think over time I needed to get back into sort of a consumer-facing product. So uh, maybe enterprise or B2B wasn't so much the best place for me to sort of flex my strengths, you know, and interaction and, um, or like the specific cohort that we're focusing on it up. You know, there's millennials or people, people below 35. It's, I feel much more at home in that kind of space.
1: This time last year I moved into recruitment started that up I'm like yeah, you beauty um, you know obviously part of our job is networking and meeting the right people first week in on the job I get um, I get a connection request from your version of Steve Jobs I suppose Dom and I'm like hang on how good's this I'm, I'm like I'm going to the boss hey look who's connecting with me he goes yeah he connected with me too and I'm like alright I don't feel so special so Dom just ease up on the bloody connection request mate he's, uh, a, bit a, he's a bit of a floozy on LinkedIn but um... <laughs> yeah. what, uh, what? he's great Oh mate, it looks like a really fun place to work, mate.
2: It's yeah, it's just, it's like a family, and like it's often we, we hang out a lot and I <laughs> get these comments on my posts around you know it's like it's like a uh, it looks like a cult because we're just we just in each other in each other's pockets and it's a really close knit workplace and it, um, I think that comes a lot uh, really down to the founders and how they've fostered this culture of close knit, honest, upfront, and everyone's just super talented and really ambitious. So I think yeah, it's one of the I reckon it's one of the best, uh, I say this with a fair amount of bias, but I think it's one of the best tech teams in Australia.
1: It's a really small team, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I joined two thousand, middle of 2017, and it was around 20, and now it'd be triple that. So, I mean, still a fair bit of growth, but not that crazy, you know, that headcount explosion that is pretty common in tech. Um, they're very deliberate around who they bring in, and it doesn't really so much seem to be about here's a role, let's... And here's what we expect from it and fill it. It's kind of people are constantly reaching out and you'll often just assess them based on, you know, what could they add to the team? Is it something that we're missing? Is it a blind spot that we hadn't considered? It's a pretty unique recruiting process. And
0: I think it's one of the, when, when we look at UpBank and I've used them as an example previously when you're talking about how um, you, you think they're one of the best tech teams in Australia. I go you stand for all those things internally externally you've got the tree of ups you you publish external roadmaps you've got a lot of you guys do some personal branding and you're very very open and you speak at a lot of different conferences and thought leadership is that sort of pushed from the founders or part of the culture that's been established because transparency and sort of how you guys have positioned yourself in the market it's pretty cool
2: (laughs) i might get in a bit of trouble saying this i think it's more emergent from the bottom up i think they're really big on not interfering. Dom and uh, Grant Thomas, the, the owners, they, um, I think they've got a pretty simple philosophy, attract and get really good talent, and then just don't interfere. Get so out of the think, way. So Yeah, like, and a lot of those initiatives you just mentioned, like, um, Anson Park is our Head of Product. He's an amazingly talented product mind, and he'll often come up with a lot of these ideas that, like, we'll, we'll, we'll listen to and be like, oh, it's pretty out there, or like, but because of the empowerment and his I suppose, talent, he's, he's able to push a lot of that stuff through. And, um, but it's not just him, it's uh, Mike Morris, our head of technology. And we've just got a plethora of people that are curious and have ideas. And it sort of goes through no real official process, but a few people will work on certain things and then it'll get out. And then, I mean, that, I remember actually, <laughs> this doesn't look good for me, but the tree of art. I was just like I I had it with I had a really jaded lens with that idea. I was just like, oh god, people are going to hold us really accountable to this sort of like a roadmap. And if we don't ship, you know, all these kind. I was just thinking about what could go wrong because I've seen really poor executions of it. Like people just opening up public uh, Trello boards and calling that their roadmap. And yeah, I've seen that too. It's, it's not really a roadmap, right? It's just this externally curated. <laughs> uh, you kind of what would you say? Yeah, it's this, it didn't seem genuine, but he, he, he I literally is our roadmap and we'll change it. If we learn something and something's not quite hooking, or a vision for payments or savings didn't, an early iteration of any of those things isn't getting the engagement we after, he'll prune and, and change direction or he'll, he'll reprioritize certain things. And when it went out, it was, I don't, I can't recall any negative any of the things that I was apprehensive about it was just almost just the the sole act of doing it was just really appreciated always just it, it was just a real breath of fresh air in the banking sector yeah. um which is a credit to that vision and the conviction to follow it through like it's one of the things that gets spoken about the most to be honest
0: I look at it and I've used it as an example of um trying to push people to understand how to do product roadmaps and how to um, what, an, what a good example is. And I've actually used the tree of up as that. And I, yeah. I look at it and I go, the detail and the clarity that must exist internally to be able to provide that information externally must be a cool place to work because if everyone can get be on the same page and be sharing that information to say, Hey customers or whoever, this was what's coming up. This is the detail we've got. You must be pretty confident about what you guys are delivering internally as a team.
2: Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, and to be honest, that's evolved as well. I when it, when everything started, 2017, we're going to launch a digital bank and we're going to target millennials. And it took a bit of self-reflecting internally to sort of understand that the team is we, we don't probably fully represent who we're targeting. But but there's a lot of this um, ethos around you know scratch your own itch, and um, we'll be using the app and we'll say oh well, I want this, I want this. But it actually goes through a, it goes through these big discussions around the product discipline around. It. You know, not just building this Homer Simpson car where you just keep bolting things on, and you know we're all power users. We've got you know crazy keyboard shortcuts and you know really nerdy workstations. And then um, from the from the from day dot, it's the average age. I mean, I remember the first thousand users were friends and family and um, early adopters in the tech scene. You know, like with Twitter followers around Melbourne. And then and I remember looking at the bell curve. And it was like average age was thirty two, and then six months later it was twenty six, and then and now like they're our mode is 19 years old, and the median is 24. So it just keeps heading in that direction. And we've got we're trying to lower the the age limit on how pep, you know how young people can be to sign up, and that's that's something that we're going to kick along for the next three or four months. But the point I'm making is we, we had confidence that we could build a a really cool digital bank, but the, the reinforcement or the belief or the alignment in the direction is coming from our interaction with users. We have a really close dialogue with um, not only quantitatively just looking at the signups and stuff, but um, we have a talk to us section in the app. It's like a cornerstone of the experience and we're just chatting to users every day. Um, and our support team will bubble up things that are coming up like, oh, people want this or people aren't finding this, or this is what people think that they thought when you've introduced covers and forwards or the feedback loop is just um, so intrinsic to how we work.
0: And and you can also, Obviously, um, you, you spoke about head of technology. Michael, was it, was it Michael?
2: Mike Morris, yes.
0: Mike Morris. And he does a lot of talks about how your fr- frequency of deployment. How quickly do you guys take, say, if you get a piece of feedback like you're talking about, how quickly can you turn from feedback into, um, I guess, pushing it out live?
2: I've butchered um, our tech stack stuff in a previous podcast. I'm going to tread really carefully. But um, there's kind of like we've got this continuous deployment type Thing on the back end, but I'd say that's pretty unrelated to the feedback loop with users. I mean, if we, actually, if, if okay, here's a good example. If something goes wrong, or if we shoot buggy code, which really happens, or we need to respond quite quickly and urgently to something, I think we're averaging about five deploys a day, server side. So, you know, it's like we could wake up and, and IBM's having an outage or, or whatever, and we, we could ship something pretty quickly. But in terms of native releases, I think we average about an app, Android and iOS every 10 days. So at one end of the spectrum, in terms of reactiveness, they're sort of the cadences. But in terms of ideas and product sort of feedback, it's um, more of a human reaction speed. So we'll simmer on stuff, we'll think about it, we'll scratch a bit further under the surface, we'll qualify it. And then I, I suppose within two to three weeks, we could have a pretty considered release you know it incorporates some good feedback but like when you can when you compare that to some of the um release cycles of the big four without taking swipes at them i i just my experience sort of with banking apps over the last few years maybe they get an app out every couple of quarters or something like that or there's never been drastic you've you've probably used that for a little while and you've seen how it evolves and changes and at the pace at which it happens we're really confident in our speed it's actually one of the main reasons that we don't even have to get everything right. <laughs> that's, that's what I say all the time. People are like, Oh, this is, you come up with really cool stuff. And I'm like, Oh, it's probably four or five wrong iterations to get to the right one. And we just do it in a month instead of two years.
1: How cool was that? That's, that's how we rock and roll. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's, that's how we operate. Just pump it out. doesn't matter. You're, you're like, you were saying done, not perfect eh? day. Yeah.
2: Perfect. Yeah. Done's better than perfect. I, there's a, anecdote or sort of like an analogy that I'm going to butcher around (laughs) I can't believe I'm even attempting this there's sort of (laughs) a uh, you'll get the gist of it there's sort of this pottery analogy around oh there's some students that were told um you know theorize about the best pot to spin and you've got and you've got all month to do it and then on the last day I want you to execute it and sort of understand every part of the process up until that and then pull the trigger and then the other half of the class all you're doing is making 100 pots a day And you can can sort of imagine who's going to produce a better result. And so that's the best example I can sort of hear of. Yeah, iteration is just key. It's not even something that you have to subscribe to. It just should be something baked in the way that you approach problem solving.
0: Is that inherent in the way that you guys work it up? I guess you've got, like you said, you've got some really talented people, curious people, ambitious people. Is that iterative mindset, growth mindset, short, short sharp releases that built into the culture there at UpBank?
2: Yeah, 100%, 100%, like unquivering. There's times when you when you just wanna sort of deep dive on something, like um, maybe the creatives, like the designers, we've got a creative director, Pete Johnson, who, um, who would probably, I think when you're in that um, artistic space, you probably wanna really stew on stuff internally and get things exactly right and then release it, like a campaign or a, maybe iteration doesn't lend itself as well in that space as it does engineering, when you can just keep trialing new versions of something until you sort of hit the sweet spot. But, um, but just generally as a whole, that's, it, that is sort of baked into the way that we, um, yeah, just our approach.
0: Right, you're talking about how millennials are your, the target demographic. And I, I, look at the, I look at the card, right? And there's a, Locke's got a funny story about the card, because-
1: You got me to do something I never thought I'd do. And that's send a photo of a bank card to a friend and saying, how cool is this? I oh mean, the packaging's unreal, the experience in opening it up and, and that, w- are you responsible for that?
2: Um, I, not solely, like it was a, it was a team thing, I think, uh, it's, it's, I think it's fair to acknowledge we were inspired by people, especially in, um, in tech, everyone wants to feel like they came up with the thing and I think we had the conviction to really follow through on this direction of investing in the welcome experience. Uh, I did a really deep dive blog post on it a years ago now and the big conversation when we proposed this idea, we partnered with Bendigo Bank and they provide the banking license and we're sort of running them through that idea and they had a pretty legitimate question around if you're going to spend x dollars on this welcome pack as opposed to 40 cents or whatever it was wouldn't the users prefer that money in their account and yeah you're like, oh, <laughs> just are like yeah that's a really good point and it wasn't that we just sort of blindly wanted to create an argument for ourselves, but it was kind of really um, sort of redressing the whole argument as, this is going to be a marketing spend, and they're going to go, why? And it's so, like, well, knowing what we know about this particular demographic is they like to share. And that, that's something that I argue about in the office a bit, because we're a little bit older, some people have kids, and they're not really deeply embedded in TikTok and Snapchat. And this whole share economy is not as prevalent in their perspectives as when I see sort of my younger cousins or we've got a few younger employees now that you just see them you know what it's like on Instagram and they're just they just tapping through stories and they're just scrolling 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 and they're just and they'll do like eight posts a week or whatever it is it's like such a different set of behaviors and there was a strong belief that if we create something that's really well executed and beautiful and considered that people are going to share it and it was such an out there thought they're like who the hell is going to share they're welcome back from the bank and i'm like well no one given the way that they're delivered at the moment but um yeah it was a bit of a journey and I, I started off with sort of the rudimentary form factor in the concept but our creative director just took that and what you see now he's just taken it sort of tenfold it's a, an amazing job what he's done but i mean again we're just empowered we didn't have any our bosses didn't say no that's a stupid idea they they kind of supported us I said, all right, if you feel really strongly about this. And like, I suppose there's a couple of digital banks overseas. Monzo in particular have, um, not as an involved welcome back as us, but had a, you know, like it was definitely better than the the stock standard one that banks do. And there was a bank in America called Simple that years and years ago had a really cool one. So I suppose we were fairly inspired by a lot of those movements, but we really decided to go after
0: it. It's pretty good on that. Once Locke sent me the photo, I signed up. So, whatever your marketing spend, it worked. You know, you got two of us.
2: Could have been the worst bank ever. Could have been 40 bucks a month fees with a shit interest rate. But
1: you sold me the design. Yeah. Good design. The, en- wins. the envelope was unreal. Even the envelope.
2: Yeah, absolutely everything got the blowtorch applied to it in terms of like just design consideration. What are all the envelopes are possible? Like, and again, that divergent, convergent thing. Like, what's possible? What are the trade offs for certain costs? That was so dialed in. There would have been. 10 iterations of that in its first year, including holders, cards, envelopes, stickers. Um, it's like, yeah, it's, it, we, we went really hard.
1: It worked. <laughs>
2: <laughs> awesome. It's good to hear. It's, it's, it's one of the most pleasing things, especially because the, the, the feedback loop was so long on that with software, you can sort of kick off an idea on a Monday and in a couple of weeks, sort of validate, oh, did we hit the mark or not? But with this thing, the lead times, just to get those leather-pressed sort of triplex holders. It's like, yeah, it's a, it might have been May. And they're like, yeah, in the end of June, we might be able to get you some prototypes. And I was just like, shit. <laughs> you have to really sort of back yourself in at that point because if you start doubting yourself and <laughs> everyone else you're working with, it's like, hey, maybe, maybe this isn't a good idea. All in. <laughs> Off, all in.
0: What differs between, so you guys are a, a digital bank that's trying to target millennials. How do you guys tackle that? So I know you guys live on you know, a bit of a following going on on Instagram and tackling some different things compared to, say, traditional banks. How does your approach to um, getting new customers differ from how they would how they would do it? I'm exposed a little
2: bit to that conversation, and we're probably a bit more open to. I mean, we 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 still spend a bit on digital ads, and we've done above the line sort of more traditional marketing campaigns like they would do, but. I mean, a lot of our referrals come through mechanisms that banks wouldn't have considered. The one that you just mentioned here in the Welcome Pack, that social media engagement, a lot of it is just good old-fashioned customer experience. We now, get, we now get a lot of our positive feedback, our five-star reviews on our support experience, that talk to us section in the app, which, to be honest, like, and I mentioned this to the team the other day, we do weekly retros mm-hmm. and there's a, there a big positive for our support team. This team of really, they're really cool. Like, they're really with it. And, you know, it's like tone of voice and gif usage and all that kind of stuff. So many people can get it wrong. You know what I mean? It's like that um, that old dude with the sideways cap skateboarding and like, hello, fellow students sort of thing. So, and we often crack that joke. So, they're, they're really with it and they're really confident and sharp around what the app can do and but also able to develop that human touch. And I think that's a big part of a growth strategy because... Um, it obviously retains people once they're in but they talk about it and it's such a is huge stimulus there because you're just not expecting that um, in terms of your banking life so um, you're used to sort of getting on the phone waiting on hold or used to really negative experiences where they're trying to fleece you or I don't know and everything in between and so from day dot I, I remember when we were thinking about what up could be and at the time it felt like a Sort of a, uh, a tech play like oh we're going to use all these crazy algorithms for merchant load um, you know and like spendable balance and anticipating your outgoings and all this kind of we just got really into that mindset of it because we we're a tech team and that was our wheelhouse and as time goes on starting to realize from a lot of the feedback is that we're we're helping people it's, it's it sort of seems to be more of a human um, approach and that isn't that's personified mostly by the support team and the relationships that they develop. Um, I mean, I, I'm involved in a lot of the Facebook groups that talk about up a lot, like She's on the Money, which is a really cool one, there's an Up Banking Community Facebook group. And I just sort of um, sleuth and <laughs> all the comments and sort of the general discussion. It's a good way to sort of have your finger on the polls with what people think about you. And I've got to be honest, the majority, like I'll spend, days at work trying to perfect this animation of an icon that comes in when you do a hard press on it, you know, like really getting close to the and all the comments are just about these amazing experiences that they had with Talk to Us. And it kind of hit me. It's like at the end of the day, like customer service is just this huge pillar. And it sounds like something your parents tell you and you don't really listen. (laughs) You just say, yeah, whatever. Um Uber's cool because I get to see the car and I get to drop the pin and but ultimately that's what you remember that um that sort of human interaction and that's becoming more and more part of our strategy because we're getting that feedback. It come comes back to that feedback loop sort of thing. Also,
0: you guys, it's your point of difference. Like you said, it's the the human element of UpBank is the only time my bank calls me is when I haven't paid a bill.
1: You know, they're just searching me for money.
2: <laughs>
1: How often is that, Rob? <laughs> oh, too, too
0: much lately. I want to ask you another one around, like, teamwork. Locke said before, like, you guys are a reasonably small team, but you have some pretty big amounts of output for the amount of people that you've got. Mm. Um, in your eyes, what makes a good team?
2: That's a really good one. Because you can get – we use sporting analogies all the time, mostly because one of our founders was an ex-football coach, uh, Grant Thomas. And so I'll often say <laughs> – I'll talk about sorry, in defence. Or just someone who's sort of doing his own thing and wants to kick all the goals. And no, 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 this is we've all got a align. on what we need to do. And he comes at it – I mean, that, that's obviously a staple of the way he – back in the day and no doubt he gets that point but he also talks a little bit around the talented players that you just need to not cage all the time and just let them do their thing so I mean that's pretty obvious in their approach in the way that they've sort of recruited and empowered people but I think acknowledging where people are different and what their strengths are rather than trying to get this here's the role execute exactly what we expect from this role and that role works with this role and sort of really prescriptive type and I think that comes down to size and their desire to keep the size small and intimate's probably an inappropriate word, but just sort of a close-knit dynamic. Whereas these growth companies or these that, that scale, you know, like, like Facebook, Airbnb, Atlassian, do you know what I mean? They, I, obviously they have to have these huge head to achieve all the things that um, they are bitten off. But at that scale, it's, you've got to imagine it's hard to celebrate the individual brilliance and sort of the unique strengths and talents that people can have. So uh, that's something we certainly tend to focus on. And we think about it a lot when certain teams are working on certain things, like who's in that team? Oh, they're going to be able to do this really well. And who's in that team? Or who's free to do this rather than here's the roadmap. Everyone's either an engineer or a designer. Off you go. So that takes time. And that's not really a managerial style. That's sort of a work culture and the sort of celebration of the individual, which sounds like a weird thing to say you know in a work company but um it's really interesting
0: because from what we've been talking people we've been talking to it's the, the ability to build networks uh, relationships within a team and that deeper understanding of how each other work it mm. seems to be the critical part to how successful those teams are it sounds like you guys are really like you said before you're part, like like a family
2: yeah we, we bicker like we just <laughs> we don't kick and scratch each other but there's like it's, it's really robust like positive conflict i love that it's one of my big I get a lot of energy from that, people who say what they think and feel rather than avoid conflict or check out a little bit and, you know, sort of leave at 5 p.m. and they don't really care. I'm not expecting everyone to do crazy workouts. I do the least crazy workouts of anyone. I like people that are invested and this is definitely a place where you can do that. But um, another thing probably worth mentioning, and maybe a few of your guests have mentioned this as well, is this word, like cross-functional. Like It's sort of the de facto... It's sort of like the inherited wisdom of how everyone should do things now, but that wasn't always the case. When I joined Culture Ant, tech was still in a place of departments. They had the big design teams, big engineering teams, and tossing stuff over the fence. And now it's these small, more integrated, yeah, cross-functional, and for the listeners that don't know what that means, it's like in any team, and this isn't isn't just Apple Culture Ant, it's from what I understand and the people I talk to, it's nearly every tech team everywhere <laughs> where depending I, I, like Instagram might have teams of over a dozen but culture amp I believe maybe you have teams smaller than that and and we probably operate in teams even smaller than that like four or five where you've just got different different roles sort of closely working together on a common goal so you'll have a product person they're perhaps deciding sort of what to build or who, what the problem is and who to serve the designers sort of saying well this is how I do it and the engineers are very much working out all the implementation concerns. There's a reason why there's so many more engines compared to all the other disciplines because that's definitely the most involved and you know, probably hardest bit to do, a lot of the technical challenges. It's easy for a designer to come up with a design saying, I want it to do this, but um, <laughs> especially in regards to banking where the, the technical restraints are so rigid. But yeah, that's that, that seems to be the makeup of a lot of teams and um, it seems to be the most effective way to... To sort of ship stuff really quickly,
0: having the right people in the room that can help make those decisions and want what's the right thing for the customer.
2: It's my favourite time. It's the I, we call them kickoffs, but everyone would have different names for it. But you get into a room and you go, "All right, guys, we want to um we want to ship automatic transfers for savers." You know, something sort of small and scoped, and then you just go around the room. The product person's like, "This is the sort of objective, or this is the qualitative thing we're trying to achieve," but it must get these. It must hit these certain quantitative things, and designers are already sort of thinking about how it would look and interact. And the engineers are sort of saying, "You need to think of all these edge cases because this is where everything can go wrong." These are the you know the unsexy parts of the problem that you don't really want to consider, but are very much our reality for the next month. And it's just it's really good rigor. It just goes around, and you sort of all agree on a scope. I mean, this is a really summarized golden path example, but I uh, I find them the most energizing because it's where everyone's the most ambitious, most excited, and you go from the abstract of an idea to what a user's literally going to see.
1: Who do you learn from?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I recommend a lot to people to get involved in the sort of the networking events, not the cheesy ones where people are like, oh, we're recruiting. It's kind of more... Um, oh, not that that's cheesy, but...
1: Oh, mate, I'm with you. I'm, you know what I'm I mean? Like, yeah, 100%, yeah, 100%, mate, yeah.
2: Um, sort of like in terms of... Well, for engineers, but they've got all those... Uh, I'm going to butcher this, but there's there's Roro, there's um, JSConf, there's like a lot of language specific sort of events, they got Rails Camp, but they end up just going to these things and getting pissed and networking, right? So it's, I'm sure a part of it's a passion for the, the subject matter, but a lot of it is seeing who's doing what, what what everyone's up to, what are some things I should be mindful of, and for me, the, the things like design ops. Is it a guy called uh, Sean Armstrong from REA who runs Design Ops in Melbourne. He ran events every two months for I've given talks and a lot of other people have as well and it just seems to I get probably more from that than I do from all the designer forums or Twitter or any you know like your dribble, like where you just see these little excerpts but um, when you go to these talks you're just seeing sort of real problems um, that are sort of on the cutting edge and they're good indicators for what's going to be... They're always sort of six months in front of the masses.
0: What do you do for fun outside, outside work? You, you've got... upbanks must be a pretty cool thing to, place to work at, but like you said, you work pretty different hours. What, what do you do for fun? What's life like for
2: you? I tend to stay pretty fit. I was in the CrossFit cult. How long has it taken for me to mention CrossFit? Oh, 50 minutes. That's <laughs> 50 not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, was, I, was, I don't do it anymore, but I, I used to sort of bounce that pretty pretty well with work and then um, I've got a little pooch that I like to take for walks every day and um, wherever I am there's always a strong coffee culture so I'll, that'll, that'll be a pretty um, rigid part of my routine but um, yeah like most workplaces these days encourage really good work-life balance so there's obviously a lot of easy signs for people that are burning out or that are getting a bit too into their thing and you just sort of tap them on the shoulder and say maybe take a few days or go on a trip or something like that. That's, that's a pretty cool thing about working these days as opposed to when I started when, you know, struggling startups and you're sort of breaking your back and it's always fun for a few months and then you sort of go through it once or twice yourself and then you realise, oh, I need, to, I need to work this out a bit better.
0: I need to have some time to recharge.
2: Yeah, I'm sure you two have been through it sort of thing. It's, it's something that in your professional career you kind of, I think everyone comes to face with at some point.
1: Yeah, it's, um, you just need to go for a walk, take a few days, go fishing, go for a surf, just get out of your head, eh?
2: Well, you've, you, you
1: stretch now, Rob. You're getting a bit old. You, you love stretching.
0: He <laughs> keeps throwing me under a bus with the stretching. <laughs> well, you,
1: he, mention, he mentions to every guest we have on, if you didn't know I'm married, to make him sound a bit more mature. Oh, I like it. I like it. It works a treat, too. It does work a treat. I like
2: yeah. that little treat. Yeah, it's completely changed my outlook in the last 10 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> Can you believe he's married? You wouldn't look at him, would you? Congratulations. Thanks, mate. I appreciate
1: it. <laughs> I, I sort of want your perspective and advice for, I know we touched on it a bit earlier, but I've got like heaps of young aspiring UX designers who've mm. recently completed like a general assembly course or an Academy XI course. Um, and they're sort of stuck, especially at the moment with the way the market is. My advice is, you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong, is to, to be curious and just start building and solving problems anyway and then and showing that portfolio and applying for companies that interest you um, and just, it doesn't have to be in that sort of UX role that you've been studying for. It could be just getting in the company and just figuring out the lay of the land and then working it out that way. Is that yeah. what you would suggest as well?
2: I've done a bit of a 180 on those sort of short courses. I think it maybe came from a position of fear initially because they weren't available when I was studying. I, I used to see it on people's LinkedIn's and then or I'd hear about it in concert. And then I was like, oh, what is it like one of those shitty PT courses that you can do at TAFE you know where you knock out the thing really quickly but you don't ever trust the PT that had been you know around for years that was kind of my ignorant mindset on it and then I got invited to do uh, sort of to mentor at one of these uh, academy XI nights the industry nights and I started meeting a lot of the people that had just finished the course and looking at their portfolios and oh yeah did a, almost a complete 180 that night and then I've since worked with people that have done the General Assembly courses and found that um, you can't study product design. You know what I mean? Like whenever you speak to people um, in this industry and ask what their background is, they sort of come from two places. It's either the the traditional graphic design angle or um, where they kind of had to learn tech or software and sort of come in from that angle, but they've got a really amazing eye for the high level concepts like, um, typography and contrast and what you know all that kind of stuff. They always able to produce beautiful things. And then, uh, and then the other direction is sometimes engineering or front end developers that have a design eye that can um, that aren't strictly sort of um, non visual. They they're kind of the two camps I'd say make up the most of the people that I work with in this field. And um, but now we're going to start to see these people come in from these courses that you mentioned that I. I, th- I think it's a really cool thing. And I think it'll be the basis of more formal tertiary degrees in the future because of how effective they'll be. And, yeah, a lot of them asked around advice for sort of what to look for or where to apply. And I was kind of, it sort of caught me off by guard. I didn't have an answer prepared, but um, I remember saying to one of them, like, I think one of the most beneficial things you can do if you're choosing between one or two places or, or choosing on a place to focus to work is make sure that they ship a lot That's a big thing for me and I think I didn't realize it I th- when I joined Adioso and I was just I was just going straight into a moving machine that just kept outputting stuff it just meant that I had I mean apart from having a solid portfolio of actual stuff that went out as opposed to here's all my case studies of internal projects that I've done um, which isn't a bad thing like you said if you don't have the opportunities to work on that of course, that's going to be beneficial, but um, it wasn't—it wasn't advice that they'd gotten a lot. I suppose I said no. It's like really important that you sort of ask them or, or find out what their cadence is. Are they shipping once every six months or are they shipping every two weeks? Because you're gonna you're gonna become a weapon quicker by working on even if it's a project that is pretty niche or or any other concerns you might have about how exposed it is. I'd I'd still opt for the one that's just. Just that machine of, of outputting stuff because you'll just close that feedback loop, and it's hard to stay bad when you're getting user feedback all the time. You don't really have a choice. You're gonna you're gonna get really good after a couple of years because, at the very least, you're just gonna want to stop hearing it, like the problems are. <laughs> <out there. laughs> I love that. That's that. That's a
1: definitely a unique perspective and and take on things. I've never heard that before. So I'm sure a lot of um, younger aspiring designers out there will appreciate that
2: yeah it might be really bad advice which is why no one's giving it but it's kind of um, yeah it's a big thing that i
1: thought about it makes sense because we're, we're we're seeing the same thing with the podcast i mean we're asking for constant feedback you know and it's like mm. we're listening so we're just constantly refining it and i think that's the benefit of just being able to do something that you know well, me mean you can just go bang let's do it um being agile and being able to fix things on the fly and learning so quickly
2: I think that's the coolest thing you've done. You mentioned that you've been following the Joe Rogan podcast since the early days. And how many kids would have been listening to that and watching it grow saying, oh, I wish I could do a podcast. But just that fear of the first step or um, being vulnerable or a whole multitude of factors, right? And it's saying, "Ah, too hard. I can't say it's too hard, but they're too scared. And then having the mindset of just saying, no, let's just go for it because we're only going to get really good if we do 100 of them. And there's no way to circumvent that other than doing 100 of them. Oh, yeah. that's
1: it. We've publicly <laughs> committed to 50 till Christmas because we're like, if we put it out there, people know, it's like your bloody roadmap. You know what I mean? It's like, we have to do this now and 50 is going to give us a good chunk of information and learnings. And I mean, we're going to make 50 awesome people. So we can't really lose, can we? It's really
2: cool. I think it's
0: really cool. <laughs> I think we'll definitely be able to see where we've improved too. I look back and I feel sorry for it. Nick Pulse was in our first episode. We've got to get him back on because we, <laughs> yeah. we burn him along the way. But that's You've okay. He minutes. loves us. He loves Here. us.
2: Just, just rewrite history. Re-record it with your new suave techniques and then just replace the it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I reckon that's a good idea.
2: <laughs> so what's
0: next for you, mate? What's, how's life? Are you guys moving back into the office or are you going to stay remote? How does,
2: how does that work for you? Yeah, COVID's really, I'm finding it particularly challenging. It's no secret in our team who the cohort of people that uh, are really vocal you know what's there to be vocal about it's a virus it's like you can't um, you can't force it to evolve away but um, I think it it sort of speaks more to my the way I work I'm really big on being in the room with people having a whiteboard talking through stuff um, and just being in the same space I'm finding um, this video conference stuff but like on the other side of that there's a large percentage of engineers that are absolutely loving uh, this new way of working they're not getting bothered they're not getting tapped on the shoulder every 10 minutes they're able to really deep dive and immerse themselves in problems and come out the other end solving them so there's a, a almost like engagement's gone up with a certain group or probably even the majority of our team um, which i've got to look at and say that's really cool but um, i we haven't spoken about any official plans of moving back but i imagine the the hope is that sometime before Christmas, we'd be able to move back into the office and um, keep plugging away at our, our roadmap. It's going to be a big year for Up in terms of, oh, it's all on the roadmap, so I don't have to worry about setting it, but like, you know, uh, accounts and potentially some credit products and, um, you know, becoming a more complete, we've sort of proven the model of engagement with the targeted audience thus far. I don't know if I'm allowed to mention this, but this could be a scoop for your podcast. I think we're going yeah, to tick over a couple of hundred thousand users and we're keen we for that to accelerate. And, and this is not an official goal, but I just keep saying to people in the office, I'm like, I oh, want a million users in a year. Like, I want this thing to... I, I don't think it's beyond us to to really a, um, accelerate once, um, once it becomes more appropriate. I mean, now COVID's sort of, you know, dominating the landscape and people aren't looking to switch points at the moment, but... Um, it's a good opportunity for us to sort of really double down on the direction because so far, everything, to be honest, it's just everything that we do. It feels like, um like, I get nervous about release notes all the time, like, because we can't always work on the things that people ask us to. Some things just aren't ready, some things have a lot, long lead times. Join accounts is the big one. That's one that we're really keen on delivering, but there's a lot of things that have to happen. So every time we do a release before that, I just, oh, shit, are people going to be a bit annoying and then it's just always received with the most positive it's a really weird thing i'm used to like maybe we'll get to a size one day where there's a critical mass of vocal my you know vocal angry people that we're not pleasing but at the moment it just feels like we can do no wrong which just speaks to how great our, our user base and our audiences they're just ace um they say uh, maybe they're aligned in this belief that banking's ready for a bit of a shake-up and um they're just loving sort of it our take on things, but they're a big part of it anyway. It's not like we're doing it without any of their help. Like they inform us on what's on what we should be doing.
0: I think one thing we haven't touched on is that with the millennial generation, I know like gaming, esports, video games are such a big thing. I feel like maybe I'm, I'm completely wrong going from left field here, but even the way you guys talk, the release notes, the design around it, it feels like a bit almost like um, what you'd expect from like a fortnight for example, the game that they come through and share the stuff that's coming up and the engagement with, it, with the community. Do you guys look to any sort of like video games or any of that sort of like gaming development for inspiration for the millennial generation? And if not, will uh, you now after my question?
2: <laughs> we've deliberately not, but now that you mention it, we'll rewrite our whole, no. It's, um, <laughs> it's funny, I don't think that's left field at all. In fact, we've been we to a lot of events. We've done some university open days or open weeks, whatever that, um, but we have like a, not a restricted budget in terms of money, but focus and energy. We haven't done a lot of events. We've done pause, we've done, oh, I'm gonna mess this up. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make is two that we've selected is PAX, or oh, sorry, successive years of PAX, which is this huge gaming convention in Melbourne. Um, it's intense, I rocked up to one to help set it up and I just couldn't believe how full on it was. I've never been to, uh, I, I imagine this is what those big E3 events are like in the States where it's just the stimulus, the noise, the lights, people in cosplay. Um, it's just like packed like sardine tin. And um, we, we've done it sort of the last two years in a row. I don't think there'll be a Pax this year, but um, definitely that space of not specifically gamers, but I mean ga- gaming represents like a really progressive part of tech that um, sort of sets the tone in a lot of those ways. And I think there's a huge overlap between what we offer and, and how it would pique the interest of that cohort. Um, just the other day I was in a meeting where we were sort of talking about this new game that I'd never heard of or that uh, – is it called Valerian or – I'm not yeah, a gamer. It's, yeah. it's this new game. All right, well, get... And never, I was just like, what the hell is it? I have to Google it right now. It's like it's made by Riot and it's apparently going to be the next Counter-Strike. Um, it's like a uh, five five versus five. You you've got team classes. Anyway, everyone in the office is huge on it, and we're sort of working out if there's opportunities for us to have uh, product placement or some branding sponsorship, or and it seems like such a um, narrow or specific focus compared to our usual discussions on marketing. And um, but again, like these 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 games and these esports in general just exploded. I watch a lot of StarCraft, which is pretty nerdy, but I, I find that um, sort of the prominence of brand and sponsorships in that space is really obvious and it's called product placement for the right brands. And, um, yeah, I think Apple really look into that space specifically. So I didn't think it was an out there question. I thought it was actually pretty on the nose i'm
0: happy you're know, oh, you right? not happy you're because <laughs> oh, I, I think it's, <laughs> it's
2: it's looking really chuffed, it? I'm pretty <laughs> happy <with> myself, Yeah, <laughs> still got it
0: <laughs> no it's interesting because i think there's, there's such a big space like twitch right what are your thoughts on twitch
2: uh I th- again like starcraft is i prefer youtube i feel more at home with a super interface but there's times where youtube's not streaming games i want so i'll go into twitch and it's just chaos like it's such a the chat's going off there's all this shit going on people are subscribing it takes over the screen and there's noises and the casters in the bottom left corner sort of playing and commentating but thanking subscriptions and oh like
0: it's full on isn't it
2: it's full on and like i think it's really cool it's like such a especially it's really coming into fall with the covid do you know what i mean like yeah. we're starved of sports right i watched like nearly every afl game on the weekend. And, like, you got all these international, like, you got these Americans, like, sort of trying to understand, like, everyone just wants sport. I don't care if it's two people flipping a coin in, like, Uzbekistan. Like, I need, I'll to, watch tele- it. I need to televise. <laughs> I'm, I'm betting on it. <laughs> yeah. um, uh,
0: I watched a video the other day on YouTube where it was, like, this dude sits there, like, just bottom corner. He's just him and the thing, and he's going... He's watching AFL highlights or biggest bumps or whatever. And it's just his reactions.
2: Yeah. That's everyone's thing so starved. to me all the, all the time. He's like, oh my God, that's a huge hit. <laughs> they're not wearing any padding. <laughs> <laughs> oh. It's funny.
0: It's that, it's, people must be missing sport, but Twitch for me is we were looking around um, trying to find someone in the gaming space that potentially get on the podcast and just the size of their audiences can't be like, it blows my mind. Like we were, Scrolling through, and I was deep in an Instagram hole trying to find people that we could tr- potentially get on. And people are popping up, like young kids from Melbourne who have got like over 1.5 million followers who just play um, just on Twitch. And you're like, I've never heard of you before, but you're flying around in jets. You know, like, what's going on? What am I missing here? It's such, I get my- weird,
2: it's such a weird economy. I can I get my
0: Nintendo back out?
2: You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's not too late. I, yeah, I always wondered, like, Especially sometimes I've seen, stream, I've seen streams where money, or like people are tipping and all this kind of stuff. Um, I said, "Oh, what? I, I, the first question I ask is, what would compel someone to do that? And then at the other end, I realized how much money these people were making. And I'm like, there's a serious economy based around this. Like, um, that was a bit of a penny dropping moment for me. Like, um, and that, that, yeah, I'm way behind it. All of this would have been sort of happening four or five years ago. It's pretty deeply established now. Hmm.
0: I think that the, the, the support aspect that comes through that, it's a bit like Locke and I have talked about it. We look at it and it's these people put out hours and hours of free content. Mm. And for the like Twitch, it's like four bucks or something to subscribe. So it's like the cost of a coffee, you support your favorite player and you mm. feel a part of something. They talk to you, they thank you. And you're like, well, I might get 40 hours of viewing time for this bloke. I am feel happy to give him four bucks.
2: Yeah so the price point's really compelling mm,
0: you don't have yeah. to give them anything you can just watch it for free but yeah i think people feel obliged at, at some point like like following your favorite band you know yeah. you like them so you want to support them you might buy some merch you might buy a t-shirt you might buy something just to say thanks
2: yeah it's imagine if imagine if bands back in the day could have these pay pass terminals going around the crowds and asking people oh. tri- asking for trivial amounts like four bucks like <laughs> it's better than you know, 100% markup on some T-shirt merch.
1: They should, put, they should put an extra buck on the beers, I reckon, and just yeah. it to the bands. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. But,
2: um, yeah, there's micropayment. That whole micropayment movement is just a, um, yeah, pretty, pretty crazy thing, 100%. Well,
0: mate, I reckon we can probably let you go. Do we
1: have any other questions, Locke? Have you got any questions for me? Mate, him? no, you've answered everything perfectly, mate. Well, I'm have <laughs> to get this one out.
2: I never get sick of talking about Up. It. It's one of the coolest projects um, to be working on. Like it's so engaged with, and people just respond to it as you two have today. Like it's um, it's a it's a almost once in a career time sort of project, and I'm really enjoying it.
1: How good was that? We love Dan. Dan the man. A hundred percent, Rob. Hundred percent. What was your favorite part? The best part for me was the one that made my life a lot easier when he when he gave the tip about um finding companies that ship a lot um because you're going to be learning really quickly so it totally makes sense and now looking back it's like why didn't i think of that before but um yeah it's just a it's just a tip that i've never heard before so i hope the designers out there you know take that approach on board and you never know
0: all right if you've listened this far we know that you know that we love you and uh hit us up with some learnings see you next episode
2: Thank You. Thank